This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? <laughs> I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. And I'm Mark Deason. Welcome to our podcast. What the hell is going on, Mark? Sorry, that made me laugh just because it's so apt. What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on is I've been picking up the newspaper lately and reading stories about Ukraine that are really disconcerting. This is the headline in the Washington Post the other day. Russia likely to seize all of Luhansk region soon, U.S. officials say. The lead is Russia is likely to seize control of the entire Luhansk region of Ukraine within a few weeks, a senior U.S. defense official said, as Ukraine sustains heavy casualties and its supplies of ammunition dwindle. The New York Times had a front page story the other day, which says nearly four months after Russia invaded, the Ukrainian military is running low on ammunition for its Soviet era artillery and has not yet received enough supplies from its allies to keep the Russians at bay, Ukrainian officials and artillery officers in the field say. The shortage has put the Ukrainian troops at a growing disadvantage in the artillery-driven war of attrition in the country's east. I could go on. There's quotes from the artillery officers and all the rest of it talking about how they can't return fire to the Russians because uh, one for one because they don't have enough artillery. I don't know what the heck we're doing wrong. But the idea that at this point in the war that we are not providing them with enough ammunition and enough artillery and enough supplies to hold Russia at bay to the point that they're likely to uh, to take Luhansk is just absolutely appalling. So I don't really understand what is going on with the supply lines. I really don't, actually. I see that there's just this constant persnickety behavior on the part of particularly the Germans, but also others, that the Germans wouldn't transfer tanks from Spain to to Ukraine, wouldn't sanction that transfer. I don't understand what the hesitation is. So, Mark, the story is that the German authorities vetoed Spain's proposal to transfer Leopard 2A4 tanks to Ukraine after they had been modernized by the Spanish. And the German officials apparently informed Madrid that such a step would, quote, contradict Western allies' decision, although unofficial, not to supply tanks to Ukraine. I just, I don't... What the hell? Right, right. Well, this is this is the question. And I'm actually really glad I saw a report just now that Olaf Scholz, the German chancellor, is going to Ukraine with, with Macron uh, next week. I'm really delighted to see that because I hope Zelensky gives it to him, but good. But, you know, at the end of the day, what I don't understand is, is whether this is just, yes, we know the Germans suck, but whether for the rest of it, it's just short-sightedness and or incompetence. <laughs> well, okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, but whether it's short-sightedness or incompetence on the part or of both. Western powers, or both. Or both. I mean, so this is the New York Times story. On the front lines in Donbass, Ukrainian soldiers are being forced to conserve shells. A few weeks ago, their guns would have been firing constantly, the crew said. Now, instead of blanketing Russian positions with ordnance, they can engage only specific targets like Russian howitzers. We're running out of shells, says Oleg, one of the soldiers in the crew, clad in dirty trousers and skateboard sneakers. They are not supplied fast enough since we fire too often. I mean, it boggles the mind. Part of the problem seems to be that they are running out of Russian-made shells and Russian-made uh, artillery. And they have, according to a Ukrainian member of parliament who's the chairman of their National Defense and Intelligence Committee, the new artillery pieces from NATO are coming in, but the guns to fire them have not. So we're running out of Soviet-made shells that we can scrounge up to get to the Ukrainians. We're sending them artillery shells that they can't use because we're not sending them the weapons fast enough to fire them. And the other thing that is absolutely infuriating to me is that Joe Biden has said, as a matter of U.S. policy, that we are not going to give the Ukrainians long-range artillery they have requested that can reach Russia. He even had an op-ed in the New York Times where he said, we are not encouraging or enabling Ukraine to strike beyond its borders. We don't want to prolong the war just to inflict pain on Russia. What the hell? I mean, first of all, this goes back to their whole, like, you know, we're only going to give them defensive weapons, not offensive weapons. 
Well, I mean, I'm sorry. A defensive weapon is when is the weapon you use when you're invaded, and the offensive weapon is the one you use when you repel the invaders. That's the difference between an offensive and defensive weapon. They're tying their hands. They're so afraid of angering Vladimir Putin or provoking Vladimir Putin. Still to this day, we're now three months into this war, and they're still not flooding the zone and giving the Ukrainians everything they need. Zelensky spends as much time pestering and begging the West for the tools he needs as he does managing the war. He's got bigger problems than trying to manage the weakness of the Germans and the French and, and Joe but, Biden. But but that's it, isn't it? I mean, yeah. but of course, this is going along with a political change as well. What we're seeing increasingly, we saw Henry Kissinger say this, and, and while I, I like Henry Kissinger very much personally, I disagree with him very strongly on this, that the Ukrainians should be suing for peace, that the Ukrainians should be willing to take a compromise. Basically, what a lot of people are saying and I think I think Henry Kissinger was merely the tip of this particularly weaselly spear was suggesting is give up territory to the Russians. We're not even giving the Ukrainians weaselly spears. Yes, well that's true too. <laughs> that well-known weapon, weaselly spears. But 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 Mark, I mean yeah. the the reality is that you are you are seeing, you know, <laughs> I just talked to a high school class and I said if you think about the world as a, as as you know, like high school you're probably not going to go too far wrong. And all I can tell you is what we're seeing now from the capitals of the West, from NATO capitals, is all of these uh, leaders looking at their risks. This has been going on kind of a long time. I mean, can't you stop this now? Because I'm really bored with this now. And, you know, if you understand further that not one American, not one, not one European is fighting on the ground. This is the Ukrainians fighting for themselves. We are still encouraging them to accept losing. So here's the thing that drives me crazy about the, uh, and I don't have the same personal relationship with Henry Kissinger that, <laughs> that forgives, that for, I'm still angry that he wouldn't uh, allow Alexander Solzhenitsyn to come to the Ford White House. Uh, so I, I've got longstanding grievances against Henry Kissinger. Um, but the moral vapidity of his position, think about this. Lovely Al- expression, by the way. Thank moral you. vapidity. So Alaska was Russian territory until they sold it to us, right? Imagine that the Russians decided Putin's expansion was not just towards the West, but also towards the East. He wanted to recreate Russia, the czarist territories, and he invaded Alaska and said that Alaska is ours. How much of Alaska would we be willing willing to give up for peace? I don't know. The answer is not a lot. I'm not sure about <laughs> the, that. And, and, and we would be offended. <laughs> and But we would be offended if people out there were saying to us, oh, come on, you know, you know give them a little bit of your land. What's, what do you need all that all that tundra for? Let, let me say a word, not in defense of, of Henry Kissinger or of Alaska. Where, weirdly, I've never been. But I have. I know. <laughs> I am aware of that. But there is another circumstance here that I think at least helps explain, if not excuse, the growing hesitation of certain Western powers, and that is gas. That's above $5 yeah. a gallon. Yeah, of course, you're right. You've written this many times and very eloquently. That's not Vladimir Putin's problem. That is the fault of the United States government, the Federal Reserve, and the U.S. Congress for spending all of that money. The war money. on fossil fuels. And the war on fossil fuels. But there's also an impending food shortage. We've got a lot of countries that are now locking up their food supplies because they are worried uh, about continuity of supply because so much is bottled up inside Ukraine. The Russians are blockading the, the uh, Ukrainian Black Sea ports. That's one of the reasons why there's a pending shortage of food supply. But at the end of the day, it's telling people who need this food, who are paying these high prices, that it's Vladimir Putin's fault isn't going to make life any easier for the Joe Bidens of this world. And so while, again, I don't excuse their growing discomfiture with the continuation of this war, I do see a little bit where it's coming from. So here's the solution. If that is your discomfiture, we're using great words in this podcast today. We're very, if, we are very sophisticated this is here. What the hell is going on? <laughs> Discomfiture, to, 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 the way to address your discomfiture, Danny, yes. is to win, is to flood the zone with weapons, is to give the Ukrainians, take the training wheels off, give them the weapons, let them beat the Russians and drive them out of their territory, and then the war will be over real lickety split if you arm them in the way that we should. They are actually extending their own misery by handing out these weapons piecemeal as opposed to giving the Ukrainians, just take the list that Zelensky gives you and say, yes, check, 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 done, it's on the way. And then you won't have an extended war because the Ukrainians are actually, one of the things we've learned about this war so far is that the Ukrainians are much more capable than anyone expected and the Russians are much less capable than anyone expected. And so given the weapons, given the tools they need, they can win, they can drive them out. And this is the, the, the other problem that Joe Biden faces in, in Ukraine. 
is that the expectations have changed. At the start of this war, nobody expected that the Ukrainians could hold out. Everyone thought it was just a, a matter of time until Kiev fell and Putin achieved his goals and we were trying to help them in their noble fight, but it was a lost cause. I remember waking up every morning at the start of this war and just first thing I did, and millions of Americans did this too, check, has Kiev fallen yet? Is Kiev still standing? And then something amazing happened. The Ukrainians won the Battle of Kiev. They protected their capital. It didn't fall. And all See of a sudden- that picture of all of the people at the beach this weekend? No. From Kiev? No. A wonderful picture. Yeah. And so one, Americans became- invested in Ukraine. You see Ukrainian flags all over the place mm -hmm. in this country. And people became inspired by Zelensky, right? And they believe in this cause. And they figured out that the only way the Ukrainians could lose is not because the Russians are too strong or because the Ukrainians don't have the courage to fight. It's because we didn't do enough to help. And if that is the case, then Joe Biden owns this war. And if the Ukrainians lose, and if they start losing, then he's going to own the loss because Americans understand this isn't Afghanistan. This isn't a place where he could say, go off and say, oh, the Afghans wouldn't fight for their own country. Everybody knows that's bullshit in Ukraine, right? And so the only way we could, they could not be winning is if we're not helping them enough. And so he owns this. And if, if we start seeing real losses and real disasters, it's going to hurt him and it's going to on top of the catastrophe that he unleashed in Afghanistan, it'll be another foreign policy debacle for the Biden administration, another nail in his presidency's coffin. One of many. So let's find out what's going on on the ground in Ukraine. Today, George Barros is joining us. He's a geospatial analyst on the Russia and the Ukraine portfolio at the Institute for the Study of War. You've heard us. Geospatial. I mean, we're just coming up. We're, we got words, baby. Hey, that's, that's their, that is, that is their word. Out, we're bringing out the thesaurus. That, that is their word. And he is, in fact, a geospatial analyst. There's a couple more big words coming, Mark. Uh, his work focuses on Russian information operations and on Kremlin campaigns in Ukraine, Belarus, and in Ukrainian politics. He used to work on Capitol Hill, and he is really one of the brains behind their absolutely outstanding reports every single day at understandingwar.org, where they lay out where what advances, what retreats, what is happening on the ground, detail by detail. So what a great coup for us to get him to join us. Here's our interview. George, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Mark and Danny. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, we're glad to have you. I wish we had better news to talk about. So the Washington Post reports, Russia likely to seize all of Luhansk region soon, U.S. officials say. Lots of reports that the Ukrainians are facing setbacks in eastern Ukraine. And one of the reasons is, is that they're running out of ammunition, that the Russians are pummeling them and they are having to conserve uh, shells because they're running out of ammunition. How are we in a position so many months into this war where the Ukrainians are out of ammunition? What are we doing wrong? Well, I think the issue is that um, this war, as this progressed, we've reached different stages. Um, as you know, just for context of listeners, the first stage of this Russian invasion, which began on February 24, it, it had a much different set of objectives in the current war. The initial set of Russian objectives were to capture Kiev and key Ukrainian cities like Kharkiv and those large centers uh, within a couple of days, three to four days, and to minimize the commitment of Russian forces to achieve those objectives. That failed, uh, of course, with the Russian stalemates to take those key cities. And actually, officially, the, the Kremlin in late April officially rearticulated new downscale objectives of just capturing, like you said, Luhansk Oblast uh, and Donetsk in the east. But even then, with these downscaled objectives, we've seen the war degrade into this attritional artillery slugfest where the Russians still have not been able to make necessarily even you know, achieve or make substantial progress towards those goals. The, that's partly due to the fact that the Ukrainians have put up a very stiff defense um, and they've been performing very well. But with the weight, sheer weight that the Russians are able to bring to bear and with the way that they've concentrated and deprioritized all these other fronts in order to focus just on Luhansk, the Russians have been able to make these incremental but nonetheless continuing gains in Luhansk. With regards to Material support for the Ukrainians, I think a key thing is going to be making sure that we really extend the operational range for Ukrainian artillery fires. From the open source, we don't have a clear sense of exactly how much ammunition the Ukrainians have. That really comes up against the limits of what we can see in open source intelligence. 
But it is very true that we can see from the pattern of the fighting from various different sources and data that we can collect that the Ukrainians need to be able to strike Russian forces as they move closer towards the front lines in Luhansk. And in order to do that, the Ukrainians need uh, better weaponry, more long range artillery, different weapon systems with longer operational ranges so they can hit those supply lines, hit those logistics convoys and those ammunition depots, which is something that the Ukrainians actually have demonstrated a battlefield capability to do so. They just need to be able to do it at longer ranges, which is why all this Western aid is, uh, in my in my view, um, going to be decisive for the next couple of months. Okay, so Mark starts out with some serious worries, and I think you know I think a lot of us are concerned. A lot of the factors don't necessarily relate to the shape of the fighting on the ground, but more to our this this is truly pathetic, but to our willingness to see this conflict continue because some of the blowback, including global you know, oil prices, including wheat shortages, are trying the patience of Western leaders who would like to see a faster resolution. Obviously, they would like to see a faster resolution in favor of Ukraine, but at the end of the day, what they really want is a faster resolution. So help, help us play forward. What does the next month look like? And is Zelensky able to rebuff or, let's say, withstand the pressure that's coming from outside? Sure. So I, we all understand the desire to end the war soon um, and just get a closure and have it over, be over with. But unfortunately, just the realities on the ground and the nature of the problem don't point towards us having a quick and simple solution. Um, you know, the Ukrainians just the other day released a really interesting intelligence report that talked about how the Ukrainians claim they have information that the Russians uh, have an operational plan for the next 120 days, which would put this conflict out into October uh, 2022. And it has a series, the Ukrainians claim that this plan has a series of contingencies that depend on the current Russian operational performance in Luhansk in the east. Um, if the Russians manage to secure uh those few remaining bits, like 5% of the territory of Luhansk Oblast that is still not yet captured. Um, it's our assessment that at that point in time, whenever it occurs within the next couple of weeks, um, perhaps sooner or later, that the Russian offensive will likely culminate, um, that Russian forces will be spent and that the way they will have to take an operational pause in order to regroup, cobble together whatever forces they have in order to continue their objectives. As it stands, the current Russian objective is actually still to capture both Luhansk and Donetsk. So by capturing Luhansk, they still, unless they define down their priorities again, will have to then continue their fighting to go for Donetsk. I'd also want to talk about the Ukrainian South. Officially, Ukrainian South, you know, Kherson, Zaporizhia, um, the coastal areas on the Black and Azov Seas, very strategically important territory, both for Ukraine and for uh, NATO with the Black Sea security is that that's not talked a lot about in the mainstream media since that's not where all the activity is happening, but there's been a lot of very alarming things that have happened there, which indicate that the Russians intend to hold those territories in the long term. Uh, the Russians recently have just begun issuing passports to Ukrainian citizens in those occupied territories. The Russians are creating fortified concrete structures uh, there and creating second and some, in some places third lines of defense which really indicates that the Russians seek to hold these territories um, and, and likely annex them uh, just similarly to the way that the Kremlin annexed Crimea in 2014. Of course, um, last week there was that Putin speech where he talked about regaining lost territories, which again all points to this is really Putin's intent, that really the objectives are a long war of conquest, territorial conquest, in order to retake a lot of Ukrainian territory. And obviously that means that if, even if Washington and Brussels wants to have a short end to the war, if Putin is providing us uh, intent to have a long war of conquest to take and hold these territories and capture even more from what they have right now, then um, our policies need to be focused on confronting the Russian threat, um, not as we would like to face it, but as it actually presents itself in, in reality. 
So just a quick follow-up here, and you reminded me when you talked about taking territory. One thing that I saw in the paper just this morning was that the Russians are starting to forcibly conscript press gang, a word that we don't hear that often because it doesn't happen that often, soldiers out of Donetsk and Luhansk, that people are reporting disappearances on the street, that people are young men of, of fighting age are being grabbed off the street. That's causing a lot of angst for them even among Russia's supporters in the territories that they are occupying. Isn't that one a sign of their already, as you indicated, waning fighting power, but also a really risky strategy for them if they're planning on annexing these territories? Yeah, I agree. It definitely is an indicator that the Russians, they are continuing to have systemic problems with force generation and effective combat power generation. And this is evidenced in really this all around the board scraping the bottom of the combat power barrel in order to cobble up the forces necessary to continue this drive of conquest that Putin still seems to be very fixated on. For the record, I have a colleague, Katerina Stepanenko, here at the Institute for the Study of War, who wrote an excellent piece on uh, Russian conscription policies and how it actually works and why essentially, you know, these mobilization and conscription policies, both for regular Russian conscripts as well as for these Ukrainian civilians, which are being forcibly conscripted, are just not going to actually generate effective combat power for technical reasons we can get in later if you're interested. But um, definitely an indicator for that. With regards to the stability of governance in the occupied territories, uh, I agree. One of the problems that why the Russians have not been able to actually conduct their offensive as effectively as they had hoped to is because in part of bad Russian planning assumptions about the necessary costs to occupy and digest uh, the territories that they would capture. For example, I think Ukrainian partisan fighting uh, and resistance behind the lines have, to a certain extent, reduced the Russians' ability to be able to project more of their combat forces to the front line, and they've been tied back. You know, we've seen reports of uh, Ukrainian partisans conducting IED attacks, targeted violence, assassinations, reportedly Russian commanders when they're in, you know, the southern Ukraine that they've been running around in more heavily armed convoys, things of that nature. And obviously, a forcible conscription among occupied territories is going to decrease the level of already low love that the locals had for the Russians when they come in. And that would likely set favorable conditions for uh, more partisan activity that will cause problems for Russia in the long run. So completely agree with all of those things. So here's the question following up on Danny's question, which is that, you know, the Europeans want to, and the, probably the Biden administration want this war to end quickly because it's really painful for us here in the West. Wouldn't the best strategy for doing that be to flood the zone with weapons that will help the Ukrainians prevail quicker, as opposed to having them in a situation where they're conserving shells and an artillery war of attrition that could take forever? If you really wanted to win, why wouldn't we be giving them these weapons at light speed? Because it sounds like they're in a position where, and correct me if this is wrong, but that's what the reporting is, that they're running out of Soviet era shells for their weapons. And they actually have lots of modern Western artillery, but they don't have the weapons to fire it. So they've got Western shells that they can't fire because the weapons haven't arrived. But And they've got Soviet-era weapons that don't have shells that they can fire. Is that true? And why are we failing to provide them with the weaponry they need to hit the Russians. And Mark, by the way, I just saw that the Germans, far from wanting to flood the zone, just blocked Spain's transfer of tanks to Ukraine. So we're not seeing much zone flooding here. But go ahead, George. Sure. So I'll be perfectly honest. From the open source, we're not able to verify exactly what the reserves of Ukrainian you know, weapons and, and ammunition stockpiles look like. But I'll take the reporting at face value for sake of discussion. I would agree with your assessment, Mark, that yes, we should be giving Ukraine Flooding is, is, is an interesting word choice. I would say we need to make sure there are logistics planners and logisticians who will take care of this to ensure that the amount of aid that we, we the collective West, provide Ukraine must meet the requirements for the Ukrainian operational tempo, both to defend their territory and then to actually capitalize on when the Russian offensive culminates and have the Ukrainians, if they decide to do so, conduct their own counteroffensives which they have been doing in some areas with, with some success. You know, there's complex things that go into the, the logisticians and the calculation for what kind of weapon systems we provide and when and the timetables. Those are real bureaucratic you know, challenges to overcome, um, as you well know. 
However, I, I it, with the point of the Germans, unfortunately, there are some states that don't want to send certain kinds of weapon systems. Um, I've seen the rhetoric going around about how we need to provide Putin off ramps. We don't want to humiliate Putin. Um, I, I think that's a flawed way to look at the problem set because you know Putin has made it very clear from his own statement that um, the Kremlin seeks to conquest this territory of Ukraine. And it's very clear that Putin is not, you know, decreasing his war, his, his war gains or his war goals. So um, that, that thinking is very flawed and we really do need to ensure that we provide Ukraine as much as they can absorb. I don't know what that number is, but as much as they can absorb effectively in order to be able to maintain the tempo that the Ukrainians need. Um, I'm sure we have the capability to do that. Um, not sure exactly why it's taking so long. The Biden administration has been hesitant to provide them with longer range artillery that you said they need. And Biden's stated reason for that is he doesn't want to provoke Russia, so he's not going to give them anything that can reach Russia. Have they, like everything else, backtracked on that? Are they starting to provide longer range weapons or are we still in a standstill on providing that long range artillery? I'm actually not as sure. My, my work focuses mostly on looking at the ground in Ukraine. I'm less familiar with the policy debate within Washington. But what I can say is I really think that this policy framework of discussing aid in terms of how will it provoke Russia is truly not a helpful framework. Because one analog, you know, I worked on the Hill in 2014, back when the question of providing Ukraine any kind of weaponry was very controversial. And at that point in time, the then Obama administration and that NSC, they gravitated towards this term of using, um, we're going to send Ukraine defensive weapons um, versus offensive weapons. <laughs> they made the distinction between defensive and offensive. And really, that's that's sort of a continue, what we see now with long range weapons that can hit Russian territory. I mean, we provided the Ukrainians a bunch of weapon systems which are capable of hitting Russian territory, depending where you are in Ukraine. So that's not really a helpful, in my opinion, way to talk about it. But going back to the 2014 example, I mean, practically all weapon systems can be used in a defensive or offensive capability, maybe except for landmines. So therefore, that's not a helpful way to look at aid to send. And neither is weapons that can hit Russian territory. Um, I think there are ways that we could provide certain weapon systems like long range rocket artillery to be able to hit those Russian convoys and logistics centers and ground lines uh, of communication within Ukrainian territory. And we can specify with the Ukrainians, we're going to give this to you with the understanding you're not going to do that. I, I think it would be fine. I think, you know, our hesitance to provide those kinds of weapon systems with that, with, with at least with that explanation, it doesn't stand up to higher level scrutiny. Let's circle back to your sweet spot and talk about Severodonetsk. So here we are. We're nervous about this last pocket in Luhansk being taken by the Russians. But you've given us hope that the Russians are actually further along on their tether than we think they are. They're actually, they don't have the ability to sustain the fighting. It, I want to layer this with a little bit of politics as well from the West. So they've got this small area and they can pause at a certain moment. Does that pause weaken their ability to take back all of Luhansk or are the Ukrainians stuck where they are? So Severodonetsk is very interesting because, you know, it's, it's one of the, it's probably the last significant Ukrainian prepared defensive position within um uh, Luhansk Oblast. There is a, a sister city across the uh, the Sever uh, Donetsky River, Lysychansk, uh, which is also another prepared Ukrainian position. Look, even if the Russians manage to capture Sever Donetsk in the coming weeks, they're still going to have to cross the river, the Seversky Donetsk River, and operationally, river crossings, contested river crossings for the Russians have gone very poorly. They, that is a capability that's difficult for them. They have not been able to do well. There's of course, a very well documented uh, time where the Russians attempted to cross the river in a different location, slightly further to the west, and were absolutely schwacked by Ukrainian artillery. So even if the Russians manage to take Severodonetsk, they're going to have to then, in order to complete the capture of Luhansk, cross the river and take one final position in Lysychansk, which is another city right across the river. Um, the Russians are also not setting really good conditions to be able to do that. Uh, just the other day, I think it was yesterday, um, the governor of Luhansk Oblast um, confirmed that the Russians had destroyed um, all but one of the road bridges connecting Severodonetsk to Lysychansk over the river. And really, you know, there's two ways to interpret that information. There's one that the Russians seek to destroy the bridges in order to entrap the Ukrainian defenders that are in Severodonetsk, um, which is one, one option. 
The other option is that the Russians, they seek to do that and then stop at Severodonetsk. The other option is the Russians seek to destroy the bridges, capture Severodonetsk, and then, you know, then conduct river crossings in order to get to Lysychansk, which would not be particularly smart given the way that, you know, if you look at the geography of the area, Lysychansk sits up on an elevated hill over the, overlooking the river from an urbanized position. It's going to be very hard for them to attack. So the Russians deciding to attack those bridges is, is not very smart. We'll put up a map for our listeners if they're looking at this on the transcript, because you're right, it is confusing. I'm confused a little bit when, we, when we're talking about this. The point I guess I'm trying to get to is that, you know, you've said, and I think we all basically assume that Russia's ambitions, you know, may be temporarily limited to Donetsk and Luhansk, but in fact, over the long term, they are interested in taking all of, all of Ukraine. If they are able to consolidate at a certain point their victories, you know, we've said they're spread too thin, they've pulled away from Kiev, but they're still they're still fighting, as you noted correctly, in other parts of the country. Um, if they're able to consolidate in eastern Ukraine, then what happens? Can they turn their attention to the rest? And will their ability to divert forces away reinvigorate that part of the campaign? No, I completely agree with you. If the Russians manage to lock in what it currently has now, or slightly more what it has now uh, in the near future, and exploit that, that would set very good Russian preferable conditions to enable the Russians to be able to continue this war at a time and place of Putin's choosing. This doesn't necessarily have to be in the immediate near future, but it could be months or years in the future. As you know, this war started in 2014. And, and uh, this is really just a continuation of a war that began eight years ago. So what we're really concerned about is absolutely, if the Russians manage to take what they have now, perhaps lock it in with a ceasefire that certain Western states might pressure uh, Zelensky to accept, which I hope he does not, um, that would enable the Russians to be able to, one, take the time that they need to be able to lick their wounds, recobble together the forces, uh, some effective forces, or reconstitute some units, um, play the long game to try to alleviate sanctions pressure, which I think in many cases the Kremlin has had successes in actually alleviating that sort of political pressure just by waiting for the West to forget about what had happened or sort of try to exploit this desire to have goodwill or some sort of detente over a long extended period of time. And also, you know, if you look at the geography of where the Russians currently are, they have an excellent, as of right now, as of today, they have an excellent springboard to be able to attack large, large territories within uh, Ukraine, particularly in the south. I'd point to where they currently are in Kherson. I'd encourage listeners to take a look at a map that we have. Uh, we have a great interactive map at our website. It's Truth to the Study of War. We'll link to it. Thank you. you they are actually positioned in a great position uh, on the other side of the large Dnieper River uh, to be able to project into the rest of southern Ukraine. Um, and up into central Ukraine. And so, you know, that is a, a significant geographical achievement that the Russians had prior to the, this war resumed on February 24, because the Russians are no longer confined just to being within small pocket in the east and in Crimea. They now have a much larger springboard, which will necessitate the Ukrainians to spread their already battered units across a larger frontal area and it would, you know, it would increase the likelihood of the Russians being able to overwhelm the Ukrainian defense. Um, one of the aspects of the war that we see right now, and this is one of the successes of this Cameron, uh, Kremlin campaign, is the Ukrainians are unable right now to bring decisive combat power to where they need to, um, in particular hotline and front lines, because frankly, the front line is just so wide. And the Russians are actually continuing uh, artillery attacks in northern Ukraine near Sumy and Chernihiv, where the Ukrainians are not able to redeploy the units that are there because there are Russians right across the border to other places in the east. And so actually that, that you know, as the front line becomes larger, this problem of spreading the Ukrainian defense thin and necessitating them not being able to bring all their guys to one decisive combat point, yeah, that, that is actually a thing that um, would lend itself to more Russian success in the future. So exit question for me, George. You've very eloquently articulated the reasons why we shouldn't be satisfied with a frozen conflict, because it's not going to stay frozen. It's just a strategic pause for the, from the Russian perspective uh, before they can go and, and take the rest of Ukraine once they've licked their wounds, as you say. But 
is it possible for the Ukrainians to prevail, to drive the Russian, actually to launch counteroffensives and drive the Russians out of the territories that they've taken so that they can't have those launching points. All the military experts were telling us at the start of this war that Kyiv was lost and it was only a matter of time and that the Ukrainians couldn't prevail and they prevailed in the Battle of Kyiv. They were able to defend their capital. Could they prevail in eastern Ukraine? Could they drive the Russians out and have a decisive victory? And what would it take to help them do that? Yep. Mark, I completely agree with you. There were a lot of wrong takes at the beginning of the war. I, I had some wrong takes as well. And I think we, we've um, undersold the will of the Ukrainian people and their actual their combat capabilities, in addition to overestimating the Russians. I think the Ukrainians absolutely are capable of expelling the Russians from their country um, and, and winning the war. Uh, but it will be, I don't want to make it sound like it's easy. It's going to be hard. The Ukrainians have demonstrated a competent defense it's going to be much more difficult for the Ukrainians to conduct an offense to be able to retake the territory. And so actually part of this, you know, problem set with the difference in different types of weapon systems to provide and the ranges and things like that, part of that is actually having to deal with the changing tempo of the war. And it was, how do we make a strong Ukrainian defense so the Russians don't take as much as they do and they can't take Kiev and all that. And that worked well. And now it's, becoming slightly more, how do we make sure that the Ukrainians can defend these newly prioritized areas of the East and South? And now it's becoming, how do we set conditions so that once this campaign culminates in the near, the Russian campaign culminates in the near future, how can we ensure that the Ukrainians have the ability to properly exploit that and then actually conduct their own counteroffensives to liberate their territory? Um, the decisive factors are going to be continued political pressure against the Russian Federation. There should be absolutely no sanction relief. I, I don't think anyone's talking about that right now, but that's a must. I think we should try, expel this notion of the desire to provide Putin an off-ramp or to not humiliate Putin or allow Putin to save face. Um, that narrative has, uh, I think, achieved too much uh, precedence in some Western European countries. France. Putin is not at that place. He has demonstrated very clearly he is not at that place. So we should not treat him like he's in that place. The other one is going to be overcoming our trepidations about potential blowback or other consequences from providing Ukraine the weapons that it needs to liberate its territories. Like I said, long-range artillery, rocket artillery, the HIMARS, et cetera, et cetera. All of that's going to be very important so that Ukraine can actually hit those supply lines that are further away. Um, this really has been an artillery war and, you know, the United States and NATO with our intelligence sharing, we've actually enabled the Ukrainians to be able to target Russian elements, Russian units on the ground very well with, with indirect fire, with artillery. But now we've gotten up to the point where, like you noted, the Ukrainians are running out of their Soviet stockpile ammunition. The logistics supply lines aren't quite set up for the Western artillery types, both in terms of weapons and firing systems or ammunition and firing systems. Um, but, you know, if we're going to share the artillery targeting information to enable the spectacular work that the Ukrainian artillery men have been able to achieve, then it also stands that we should be also providing them the weapon systems so that we, they can, you know, marry up and have that synergy between the intelligence sharing and the targeting information and the weapon systems to be able to hit the targets that they need. Is it possible that we're now in a transitional pause where the Ukrainians have been fighting with Soviet era equipment, they're running out of the shells. And so the Russians are pummeling them and they're not able to respond fully. They're getting the Western shells, but not the Western guns. But once the Western equipment starts coming in and they can fire, all of a sudden, doesn't that change the game in the sense that our stuff is better than their stuff to use technical yeah. Pentagon language, right? <laughs> that that if, if the Ukrainians start fighting with the weapons that can start deploying Western effective, much more precise uh, artillery, then that could presage a turnaround, couldn't it? Yeah, I don't want to talk too much outside. This goes a little bit beyond the, re the realm of my expertise. Uh, I'm not an artillery expert. Well, we're not experts in anything and we talk about stuff all the time. <laughs> So I, I completely agree with you. Uh, you know, when the Ukrainians won the Battle of Kiev, that was in large part because of flawed Russian operational planning. The Russians, they stretched their supply lines too thin, which made them vulnerable to uh, Ukrainian attacks, both from artillery as well as raids. To destroy those convoys and destroy those ammunition depots and the frontline material was not getting to the frontline of Kiev. And eventually that Russian effort failed. 
So the Russians learned from that mistake, and with their their current offensive in eastern Ukraine, uh, the supply lines coming from Russia are much shorter, they're more secure, um, and with the current Ukrainian operational effective ranges for what they can hit with the current Ukrainian artillery, they're able to put more of their supply lines and convoys behind safer areas. And so in that regard, I do agree that the West being able to provide Ukraine with longer range uh, artillery systems, the rocket artillery, the HIMARS, so on and so forth, those systems can actually provide Ukraine unique capabilities that only the West can provide. And we therefore should prioritize doing that because I think if the Ukrainians can hit those structures, it will affect the frontline situation. So exit question from me, George, and I'm again going to press you out of your comfort zone uh, just for a second. So population of Ukraine, 44 million people, plus or minus some change. Population of Russia, 144 million, plus or minus some change. One of the reasons why the Ukrainians have been able to do so well, in addition to their extraordinary courage and perseverance, is that they have mobilized. The Russians have not fully mobilized. In fact, they've been very reluctant. They've mostly used soldiers, as we all know, from more eastern areas and have not tried to hit the sort of the the centers uh, with recruitment. What happens if Russia decides to actually mobilize? Is victory within their reach, in your opinion? Short answer, no. Uh, mass mobilization from the Russian Federation would not would not generate effective combat power immediately. Wow. Um, as you know, if you look at the way that the Russian conscription cycle works and the way Russian conscription works, we have a great piece on our website, um, uh, Institute Study of War, on this piece. Essentially, um, it's it's a rush process whereby a Russian soldier will maybe receive, I think, between like six to eight months of training that includes both basic training and some specialization training before they go to a unit. And then they end up serving the remainder last few months of their one year of service uh, working in that unit. It takes more than eight months to train a efficient and competent infantryman and mass mobilization, where essentially the Russians would just be sending many bodies to the front line, would not actually generate effective combat power for the Russian Federation. Combat power is a larger function of just People with guns, it has to do with making sure that they have cohesion, um, that they have good training, um, that they know how to actually you know, fulfill their tasks well. And in order to imbue a civilian with those skills, it takes a long time. And uh, putting those sorts of people, the way that the Russians have been mobilizing people roughshod and sending them with um, bad equipment, old equipment, under-equipped to the front lines, um, it's been a real meat grinder. And, you know, uh, I think that's why we don't think that will happen. The other thing is, this goes back to the force structure of the Russian military. The way that the Russians have decided to piecemeal create these, re, you know, what they call battalion tactical groups, reinforce battalions and send them into Ukraine has actually inadvertently decimated the Russian uh, force structure because they've robbed all of their, well, not all, but a significant number of their good high readiness military units and sent them to go be destroyed and, or severely reduced in Ukraine. And in order for the Russians to be able to fill those losses, they've actually had to take conscripts, um, mobilized persons, and put them into those units. And the problem is that on a battlefield, when you take new people and you use them to fill out an existing unit that was once coherent with highly trained and well-specialized individuals, that's going to reduce the cohesion and morale of that unit. Because all of a sudden you're working with new guys that aren't the old guys that aren't as competent. And so mass mobilization actually is not going to be a quick and easy um, problem solver for um, the Russians campaign. And of course, that's not to talk about all of the additional political costs and ramifications that would have for the Kremlin if there was a mass mobilization announcement. Amazing. Really great. Not all great news, although more good news than I think Mark and I expected in our conversation with you. George, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We're really grateful. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. Take care. So, Danny, just further confirmation of what a great organization Institute for Study of War is. Uh, that was a great interview. He's, first of all, filled with knowledge and in an understandable way for, for all of us uh, who are not military strategists. Who are not geospatial analysts. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so that was terrific. 
end a little bit more hopeful than I began this podcast because what I hope, I think what we stumbled onto at the end is that it's taken too damn long and it's going too damn slow. But at some point, the Ukrainian military is being transformed from a Soviet based, Soviet weapons based military into more of a Western weapons based military. And Western weapons are better than Soviet weapons. And modern Western weapons are better than Russian weapons. And so if we can get these weapons to the Ukrainians faster, more of them, more, more, faster, faster uh, into the hands of these Ukrainian soldiers, they can turn this battle around and they can drive the Russians out. And then we could all go back to not blaming Putin for our gas prices, but blaming uh, the war on fossil fuels. Yes, they can change their story yet Oh, I'm again. sorry. That's not much of an incentive for Joe Biden. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. Yeah, probably right about that. <laughs> but I agree with you. I went into this pretty depressed. I mean, the news has been not great coming out. And, you know, I think we all understand that Russia may appear to be willing to halt uh, its operations at a certain moment once it consolidates a territory in Donetsk and Luhansk. But at the end of the day, their main aim remains to conquer all of Ukraine. And if we and give beyond. them this, if we help give them this breathing room, this breathing room, we are really, really um, uh, hurting our own interests, not just the interests of the Ukrainian people. So I was glad to, to hear George's analysis and his suggestion that, in fact, they really actually don't have what it takes to win this or to consolidate, which is quite remarkable. But of course, we could stop this from being the drip, drip, drip by, as you say, flooding the zone. And I'm really happy to see that a lot of a lot of columnists out there, a lot of editorial pages out there are really leaning hard on the Biden administration to do more, do it faster. Two things we've learned from this podcast is one, when Henry Kissinger says something, do the opposite, right? Not Number, always, uh, but yes. In, 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 in anything having to do with Russia. How's that? <laughs> I liked his theory of the war of the uh, Iran-Iraq war, which is I'm, I'm rooting for casualties. But here's the other thing that we need to keep in mind is that the reason, as you pointed out at the start of the show, that a lot of Europeans are pushing, we- weaseling. Want, want, weaseling and wanting to sue for peace is because they really don't want that. They, they're not comfortable with the high gas prices and the high energy prices and all the pain of the sanctions and everything like that. Let me tell you, no matter how this war ends up, we should not be lifting sanctions on Russia, period. <laughs> this should be the new permanent case for how Russia is contained. The, the, the idea that, OK, at the end of this, it's going to be, OK, bygones, you know, you're back in your in, in your country and, uh, you know, we've, we've got a peace agreement and now we're going to lift sanctions and go back to using your oil. It's like, sorry, no, we should never be going back to that. I, I would suggest to our European friends that instead of pushing Zelensky to sue for a bad peace, maybe they should start buying American liquefied natural gas and start building some LNG ports for their energy and finding other sources of energy other than Russian energy, because we should never be going to the back to the days where Nord Stream 2 is the future of European energy. I wholeheartedly agree with you. Uh, I I do think the Europeans have learned more of a lesson than you credit them, that giving Russia so much control over them was a huge mistake. I hope that they've learned that lesson vis-a-vis China as well. I hope they will not be reversing themselves. You heard what Zelensky said about Taiwan the other day. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. He did an event with the Taiwanese. And yes, I did. And I do. And good for him. He's a a man of of solid principles where so many others have failed us. I think the Europeans are going to be a little bit better than your worst fears, although God knows I could end up eating my words. The thing I want the most is for this to begin a, a moment of reflection for the NATO powers we are not in some great, you know, postmodern moment of peace. We have a genuine, if I may coin the phrase once again, axis of evil out there. We've got the North Koreans, we've got the Chinese, we've got the Russians, we've got the Iranians. These countries, plus Venezuela, are working very hard to undermine us. That's five. How many is in an axis? You can have five in an, you axis. Can have an axis. I guess you can. Okay. That's of course, fine. you can have any number of points on an axis, okay. Mark. Fine. In addition to your vocabulary lacking, you're also mathematically lacking, apparently. But truly, we are facing a serious, well-funded array of adversaries, and we need to be much more on our game. We need to advantage the powers of freedom, the powers of democracy against the Russians and the Chinese and the Iranians and the North Koreans and the Venezuelans and everybody else who's against us. In the the wheel of evil. (laughs) No longer an axis, it's a wheel.
It kind of rhymes people, too. The wheel of evil. Daddy's coined a phrase. <laughs> you coined it. People are going to think this is the world's most unserious podcast. It's, anyway, we need to stand up to the wheel and the axis of evil and also the radius of evil. We need to stand up to these countries. Seriously speaking, this should have been a lesson learned for all of us. We overlooked Russia's predations against these people. We overlooked Russia's killings that took place in Europe. We overlooked Russians murdering their own opposition figures inside. We, we overlooked o- the people in jail. We overlooked all of it. We overlooked Donetsk. We overlooked Luhansk. We overlooked Crimea. And this is what you get. Time and, for us to wake up. And we're overlooking uh, Xinjiang. Yes. And we are overlooking Hong Kong. Hong Kong. And we are overlooking the, uh, the South China Sea. South China Sea. And we're overlooking the, uh, do you want to finish it for me? <laughs> the, we're overlooking the Chinese uh, military straight, uh, coming into Taiwanese airspace and becoming increasingly belligerent against them. So uh, at least two points of the axis are very aggressive and being overlooked. And look, here's the thing we need to recognize. Winston Churchill had a book called The World Crisis at the start of the early uh, 20th century. And he, I will not do it justice to what he said, but he basically what he said is that the world had come to the conclusion that war was too fantastic to be considered in the 20th century, that the increase in in trade and commerce and this is, human this is values. Winston and I, Churchill referring to a very famous book by a man named Norman Angel yes. that came out in 1914. And so he say exactly, we've grown above these things. This is, the war is impossible today. And he ended by saying, are you sure? It would be a shame if you were wrong. And the point is, the 20th century was the bloodiest century in human history. 100 million people killed under communism, 25 million people killed by the Nazi regime. And we are at the start of the 21st century, the twin ideologies of evil in the 20th century. Nazism killed 25 million people. Communism from Russia to China to Cambodia's killing field killed 100 million people. And we are at the start of a new century. And it is not fated that this is going to be a less bloody century than the last one. And we need to take these threats seriously. We need to take them seriously now. We have to listen to the modern Churchill, Zelensky, who's saying, give me the weapons to fight back against this, because if we can defeat the Russians in Ukraine, it'll weaken them. And Joe Biden is wrong. We should be destroying the Russian military in Ukraine, letting the Ukrainians do our work for us so that they can't threaten Eastern Europe. They can't threaten Poland. They can't threaten the Baltic states. And they can't threaten other, other countries. He just said the other day, that he sees himself, I'm, I'm paraphrasing now, as a new Peter the Great invading Sweden. And the whole world thought Sweden was their, their territory, but it was really Russian territory. It's like, you know, that's what he sees himself as a modern Peter the Great who's going to reco- reconstitute the Russian Empire. Let's, let's destroy let's him. Let's make him a let's, modern Nicholas. <laughs> yeah, let's make him a modern Nicholas. Exactly. I love that. And uh, let's do it in Donetsk. Let's do it in Luhansk. Let that be the battle that destroys the Russian military and weakens them so that they can't be aggressors against the rest of the world and sends a lesson to China and the other countries and the, the, that want to uh, want to wage wars right. of aggression. So another Churchill reference. What what was the other the title of the other book that he wrote? While England slept. We should have enough wake up calls at this point that uh, that that book could not be rewritten. One hopes about this current era. Hey folks, thanks for listening. As always, send us comments, sign up to our Substack, share this with your friends, and uh, take care. See you next week. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm